Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. The music on today's show is The Only One by Rolling Blackout's Coastal Fever off their brand new album, Sideways to New Italy. To hear the full song and all the other music from my episodes, check out the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. Today marks the kickoff of this year's Scott Fishbowl drafts. It's July 6th. I've touched on SFB here and there on the podcast before, but in a nutshell, it's a huge multi-league redraft tournament with really deep rosters. It's a 22-round draft for each of these leagues. If you want to learn more about it, check out the SFBX hashtag on Twitter or go to scottfishbowl.com. One of the cool things about SFB is how its creator, Scott Fish, will change the scoring settings every season to create a new fantasy football environment. This year, most of the scoring tweaks were made at the quarterback position to punish inaccurate passers, but these Scott Fishbowl leagues also still feature both PPR, aka point per reception, and point per first down scoring settings. And as promised on previous episodes, I'm going to discuss the impacts of PPR and point per first down scoring on this week's show. To do that, I'll be using the rankings at 4for4.com, which include both receptions and first down projections. The cherry on top of our first down projections is that we break them out by type so you can see passing first downs, rushing first downs, receiving first downs. So if you use custom scoring settings where the value of, a say, a rushing first down isn't the same as that of a receiving first down, something like that, our projections are where it's at. Even if all first downs are worth the same amount of points in your league, it still isn't that easy to find first down projections at the individual player level. So go get subscribed at 444.com and check out what we've got. In addition to the site's rankings and projections, which you can actually customize based upon your league settings if you want, you'll also get access with your subscription to a bunch of other awesome tools like our strength of schedule metrics, our draft analyzer, and our stat explorer apps for snaps, targets, and touches. The benefits don't stop there either. If you sign up this week, you'll get our early bird pricing plus a $35 coupon for a draft over at the FFPC. So no matter how you slice it, that's a lot of bang for your buck with a 444 subscription. So head over to 444.com today and get signed up. Now let's get into the scoring settings analysis for PPR and point per first down. And I'm going to start with PPR because this is a bit more typical in a traditional league. We start, we're starting to see this everywhere. In fact, I think some sites like ESPN have done some research and figured out that more people are playing PPR now than leagues that didn't have PPR before. And and there are different variations on this, right? There's full PPR where each reception is worth a point. There's half point PPR. You'll even see, you know, 0.75 points per reception. There are a bunch of different ways you can do this, but let's try to figure out how we can adjust for point per reception scoring in general, whether they're worth half a point or a full point or more. And to do that, let's start by asking some questions. What sort of skills or roles are we looking for from our fantasy players in PPR formats? Well, it's an easy answer. We want guys who are going to catch a lot of passes, right? So then we have to ask, what drives reception volume? You want to see players getting a lot of targets so that they have the opportunity to catch the ball. And for a player to get a lot of targets... They're going to need to be on the field a lot. They're going to need to see a lot of snaps. So what must happen for players to accrue a large number of targets and or snaps? I mean, there are a lot of different things that can drive this. I mean, first and foremost, the talent of a player, right? If a player is good, they're going to be used a little bit more often in their offense, or at least we would hope so. Scheme in general, like maybe certain offenses throw to the tight end more often than others. Certain coaches might prefer to throw passes to running backs out of the backfield more than other coaches. There's also just attrition at the position, right? Like you could look at a crowded wide receiver depth chart or a crowded running back depth chart. One of those two guys gets hurt. All of a sudden, the targets, they're a little more concentrated in terms of volume on one guy or another. Uh, Another thing that can impact targets and snaps are players who see the field more when they're playing from behind. So what comes to mind here are those third down backs, the guys who are known as just primary pass catchers, good guys who are good at uh, pass blocking when they're in the backfield. And so if your team is playing catch-up and you have to throw, then you're more likely to see someone like Alvin Kamara on the field than someone like Latavius Murray. Now, maybe that's not the perfect example, but you get what I mean. So those are just a few ways that we can look for what's driving targets, what's driving snaps for players. And from there, we can start to ask, you know, okay, so now we've we've figured out what we're looking for in terms of piling up these catches, these receptions. How is it different between half-point PPR and full-point PPR, maybe 0.75? The short and easy answer I can give is that half-point PPR is going to be a lot closer to one-point PPR than to no-point PPR, like zero PPR. And that makes sense if you think about it, right? Because 
the key factor here is that we're giving receptions value. And whether we're giving them the value of half a point or 0.75 or a full point, it matters less you know, what the actual magnitude of that scoring is. And what really matters is the fact that we're giving points for those stats at all. So if you are on the fence about how to adjust for, say, a half point PPR when you've only ever played in no PPR or full point PPR, skew your tendency is more towards what you would do in a PPR league, even though you're not getting quite as big of a bonus. So another question we can ask ourselves is, should PPR be the standard? And I talked about how this is becoming more and more common. It actually is more common now for players to, or for fantasy commissioners to set up their league with some form of PPR, whether it's half point or full point. My personal preference is half point, but is there a way we could be doing this better? And this is where this idea of point per first down comes in. This is something else we can consider because there are some arguments against PPR. For example, short passes, passes for losses of yardage actually can still earn positive points when you're using PPR, right? So if a player catches a pass but loses five yards in a full point PPR league, they get minus 0.5 for the yardage, but then they get a full point for the reception itself, which gives them half a point, even though the play was very bad for his team, right? That That's a... A loss of yardage should not equal positive points. That's one of the key arguments that a lot of people will make against PPR. And so there's this alternative of, okay, what about point per first down? And this is good because first downs are always good, right? If your team is accruing more first downs, that should matter and that should count. And so there's some intuitive connection here between the way a fantasy league works and the way a real NFL game works. We want to be rewarding things that are positive for those players and positive for those teams, That's not to say there aren't some players in the NFL who will get cheap first downs, right? You think of the goal line specialist or the short yardage specialist who comes in when it's fourth and inches or third and one and just hammers those over and over again. He might only be in for a handful of plays in any given game or even any given season. And he might not be accruing a whole lot of yardage relative to what we would expect from a a quality or, or a high demand fantasy asset. But in point per first down, that player's value goes way up. We'll talk more about that later with individual players who might fit these molds. But anyway, I'm off on a tangent here. The the overall point I'm trying to make is that point per first down is a little bit more correlated to success in an NFL game than just a reception is, even though we know receptions are good too. So let's talk about what we're looking for in terms of point per first down. Like what sort of skills or roles are we looking for? from our fantasy players in that type of format? Well, again, there's an easy answer. We want guys who are gonna earn a lot of first downs. So then we ask, what drives first down volume? Again, talent has to be one of the key answers here, right? If a player is better, they're gonna see more work. They're gonna have more opportunities to score first downs. The role of a player becomes important. I talked about that idea of a a short yardage specialist. Uh, But in addition to that type of role, there's also role based upon volume, right? Like a high usage player, even if they're not that talented, If they're seeing a lot of work, they're going to get more first downs. We can also look at the depth of target for certain receivers. Like how often are these pass catchers receiving the ball at or near or past the first down marker? Now, that can be a little tricky, right? Often, you know, depth of target is associated with fewer targets, right? Guys who are targeted downfield further don't always get the ball thrown their way as often, because it takes them longer to get down the field there. Not every play is going to develop that long. Not every scheme is going to be running and gunning those those deep passes on every play. Like 2019 Tampa Bay Buccaneers were the exception, not the rule, right? What else can we look for? We can look for good teams, good offenses, right? Just in general, if, if we want to find first downs, we want to find teams that are sustaining drives, that are chaining together first downs, play after play after play, drive after drive. We also want to make sure that these pass catchers that we have or these running backs that we have have the trust of their quarterbacks, the trust of their coaches, right? And this ties back to that idea of volume and role, right? If, if a player is trusted by his team, then he's going to be used more in these high leverage situations. You might be more inclined to target a player like that on a third and whatever or, or at the sticks, you know, expecting to make that first down play. So these are all the sorts of things that we got to be thinking about when we're factoring in our analysis for point per reception, point per first down. How do these scoring settings affect the players that we're going to be drafting in our fantasy leagues? Now let's talk about some of the specific players in 4-for-4's projections that figure to lose or gain value based upon scoring settings. And so the methodology is pretty simple, right? I put the projections from our site into a spreadsheet and I manipulated the value associated with receptions and the value associated with first downs to figure out, you know, okay, if 
a first down is worth zero. Here's how much how many points this player scores. Here's what his projected ranking is at his position. Now let's change the value of a first down to a full point. Then what happens? Does the player score more points? Well, I mean, obviously, if you're giving points for first down, they're always going to score more points. But do they score more relative to the other players in the ranking? So what is the projected ranking difference between when first downs are worth zero versus when they're worth one? And I did that for receptions and for point for first down. Let's start at the running back position with guys who are notably better in PPR. And it starts up at the top, Saquon Barkley. He ranks as low as the RB5 in non-PPR, non-point-per-first-down leagues because he's projected for fewer touchdowns than all other running backs in the top 10 of ADP. He needs points from those receptions or from first downs to make up for his lower number of projected touchdowns. And this makes sense because we don't expect the Giants to be very good, right? Now, on the flip side, let's look at Alvin Kamara. He ranks all the way down at RB9 or RB11 in non-PPR, depending upon the value of first downs. Not too surprising because Kamara is projected for more catches than every other running back except Christian McCaffrey, right? He's going to rank a lot better in PPR than he is outside of PPR. And the touchdowns here with him aren't as much of an issue with Barkley because we know that the Saints are a good team and a good offense. Kamara is projected for a fair enough number of touchdowns for it not to make a big difference in terms of PPR or point per first down. The difference with Barkley is that his touchdown total is projected to be so low that he actually needs those other bonuses from other stats to elevate him past the RB5 in projected rankings. Next up is Miles Sanders, who just has a well-rounded production profile between rushing and receiving. So in non-PPR formats, some nearby players with higher touchdown rates and more value tied to rushing yardage are going to jump over Sanders. Sanders projects as a top 12 running back, regardless of reception and first down values, but he does gain value in PPR because he profiles to be a a relatively good receiver for his team. Again, same story with Barkley, same story with Kamara, and same story with the next guy, Austin Eckler, who's pretty much Alvin Kamara light, a primary back whose greatest strength is his pass catching. The Chargers project to be a much less productive offense than the Saints, though, so Eckler ranks lower, and his overall lower volume of touches and yardage makes his drop-off in non-PPR a lot worse. So he drops down from RB10 all the way to RB16 if you take away PPR. Let's move on to a group of running backs next. Todd Gurley, Le'Veon Bell, James Conner, David Johnson, Devin Singletary. All these guys are primary backs for their teams. All of them have some amount or a lot of receiving ability. And this type of asset at running back is going to be good in PPR formats, or at least project to be good in PPR formats. Now, with that said, this type of asset is also possibly the most at risk of the projection errors that I discussed with Pat Corain last week, because the market will often struggle to separate the name value of these players from the actual value of these players. And this could trickle up to Miles Sanders as well. Pat made the point last episode that Sanders could lose more receiving work than we anticipate to Boston Scott. So keep that sort of stuff in mind when you're looking at these guys who look good in the projections based upon raw volume, because if we misassign the value, if we misassign that volume to these players in the projections, they're going to end up scoring a lot less, touching the ball a lot less, essentially. Next up are DeAndre Swift, Kareem Hunt, James White, Matt Breda, and Tariq Cohen. These guys aren't necessarily atop their running back depth charts, but they are all likely to lead their backfields in receptions. Swift, Hunt, and Breda are all super intriguing to me because it's easy to paint a picture where they do become the primary rushers for their team. I don't think you're going to see that with James White or Tariq Cohen, but with Swift, White, and Breda, they're essentially one injury away or one bad year away from one of their from their primary running back competition to gaining more work than the projections expect. Next up, Naheem Hines, Antonio Gibson, Chris Thompson, Giovanni Bernard, and Lynn Bowden. Again, more receiving-only contributors here, which makes these players pretty unappealing to me outside of PPR best ball because their production is too dependent upon game script. Like in a league where you have to decide when to start these guys, you might guess wrong a lot of the time because if their teams are winning, these players won't see the field much, and that makes them risky in formats where you have to decide whether or not to start them. With that said, Antonio Gibson is a player the 4-for-4 team tends to like. Washington's backfield is pretty nebulous with Gibson, Darius Geis, and Adrian Peterson all projected for around the same level of production. And Gibson could also find the field as a receiver 
in all forms of game script because Washington's pass catchers are pretty underwhelming as a group. Chris Thompson also seems like he could have some standalone value with the obvious caveat that he has to stay healthy, something that he's struggled to do for a few years now. But still, Jacksonville has already made it pretty clear that Leonard Fournette isn't in their long-term plans. If the Jags diminish Fournette's role in season, Thompson's familiarity with offensive coordinator Jay Gruden could help him see the field for more regular touches, especially because Jacksonville figures to be a lot more poor on defense this year than in years past. And those playing from behind game scripts are going to favor a pass-catching back like Thompson versus the the between-the-tackles grinder that they have in Leonard Fournette. Uh, Let's flip the script. Let's talk about some running backs who lose value when PPR is in place or guys who rank better in traditional scoring that doesn't reward points for receptions. Up top, we got Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb. These two both essentially have all their projected production tied to running the ball. So they should move up your board in traditional scoring without PPR. But while Henry is almost certain to dominate goal line work for the Titans, the presence of Kareem Hunt in Cleveland and Hunt's flexibility as a rusher and receiver could spell some trouble for Chubb if Hunt steals touches around the end zone. And it doesn't have to be, you know, inside the five, inside the 10. If Hunt's banging him in from, you know, between the 10 and the 20, uh, that is one less opportunity around the goal line for Chubb. Next up is Josh Jacobs. And the discussion Pat and I had last week should tell you everything you need to know about Jacobs' projectable limitations in PPR format. So go back to that episode and listen to that for more on Jacobs. Uh, Aaron Jones is next. Too much projected value tied to touchdowns with Jones, but touchdown rate is so variable for for all players that I don't fully buy a fade of Jones in PPR formats, especially because we've seen him perform well as a pass catcher and the Packers receiving ranks still leave a lot to be desired, right? They didn't really add anybody of consequence at receiver. So I still think Aaron Jones is the best bet out of the Packers backfield to lead that team in targets. Let's move on to Leonard Fournette and Jonathan Taylor. And it's strange to fade Fournette in PPR after the monster season he just had catching the football, but we simply can't project him to repeat that receiving workload. So he should revert to being more valuable in non-PPR formats, and the projections reflect that. Taylor wasn't really asked to catch that many passes in college, and that's driving his low receiving projections here at 4 for 4 Plus, the Colts also have Marlon Mack and Naheem Hines to potentially use in receiving roles, so that's not helping Taylor either. Still, I think we might see, or could see, a tale of two seasons with Taylor, where he isn't involved as a receiver early in the year, but he ramps up that production as the weeks wear on. We could see him get more receiving work later in the year. And so if you are in a PPR format and you start to see that sort of trend developing, that might be a good time to buy low on Taylor. And again, there's also the odds or the chance that Hines or Mack could get injured. And at that point, Taylor's going to see more work anyway. So that's another overall takeaway for all these running backs is there's always room for these guys to expand their role in season, depending upon what happens with their respective teams. Only two groups left here. The next is going to be Raheem Mostert, Mark Ingram, David Montgomery, and J.K. Dobbins. These guys all project for committee usage with other tailbacks. And in the cases of Mostert and Montgomery, there's another running back on those rosters with better receiving chops, Tevin Coleman for the Niners and Tariq Cohen for the Bears. Whereas Ingram and Dobbins figure to pilfer each other, right? And with their primary values tied up in rushing yardage and rushing touchdowns, receptions don't figure to be as important to Ingram and Dobbins, so they rank better in traditional scoring than they do in PPR, even though they both should be used as receivers to some extent. The last group in this category are Ronald Jones, Kerryon Johnson, Sony Michelle, Jordan Howard, Darrell Henderson, and Latavius Murray, and Zach Moss. And just more of the same here with this group. Most of these guys have a teammate who projects to take most of the receiving work away from them. I think the one possible exception here is Devin Singletary and Zach Moss. Right now, the projections have Singletary set to be the main pass catcher for the Bills out of the backfield, but based upon the profile that Moss showed in college, based upon Singletary's relative struggles as a receiver uh, in his first year, we could see Moss become more of the receiving threat in that backfield. And TJ Yeldon is still there for what it's worth. Not that he's draftable, but that could hurt both these guys, Singletary and Moss and PPR. So keep that in mind. All right. And that does it for running backs in PPR. Now let's talk about running back winners and losers in point per first down leagues. And again, we're going to start up at the top of ADP, this time with Alvin Kamara. 
He gains two ranking spots in point per first down leagues, moving from RB11 to RB9, but only if the scoring doesn't already include PPR. In PPR leagues, Kamara projects as the RB5, regardless of whether first downs are worth one or zero points, and that's because his big reception numbers already make him super value on PPR scoring. So the extra boost he gets from point per first down isn't quite as impactful. But if the league you're in doesn't have PPR and it does have point per first down, Kamara is slated to get enough first downs that he does make a jump up from, again, RB11 to RB9. Now, the counter to that case is with Nick Chubb. He gains two spots in the rankings in point per first down leagues, but only ones that have point per reception. Essentially, all the first downs that he figures to stack up as a high volume rusher help him to close the gap if there's also PPR scoring. Chubb isn't catching that many passes, so in PPR, he's not very he's not as valuable. But if you give him point per first down in addition to PPR, all the first downs he's going to get push him back up the rankings a little bit. You still would rather have him in a non-PPR league, but if you're in a PPR league that also uses point per first down, Nick Chubb doesn't take as much of a hit, so keep that in mind if you're using both settings. The next group of running backs is Aaron Jones, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and James Conner. All of these guys lose two ranking spots in point per first down leagues. The running back committee surrounding them figures to steal enough overall touches away, rushing, receiving, or both, that Jones, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and Connor all project for a lower number of first downs than the running backs that are near them in ADP, who project for more workhorse-type roles. One of those nearby ball carriers in ADP is Leonard Fournette. His projection to dominate touches out of the backfield for Jacksonville makes him a good bet for a lot of first downs. In zero PPR leagues, he jumps two spot in the projected rankings when point per first down is added, from RB15 to RB13. And in leagues with PPR, he jumps three spot in the projected rankings when point per first down is added, from RB21 to RB18. So as you can see, he's still less valuable in PPR, but when you add point per first down, whether it's PPR or not, he's going to gain value because he's projected to touch the ball so much. He's just going to have so many opportunities. The question we have to ask is that one before about how good the projections will turn out to be for Fournette. We'll have to wait and see, but that risk associated with Fournette losing touches to Reichel Armstead, Chris Thompson, and even maybe Divina Zigbo makes Fournette a little less appealing overall, and it makes those other rushers in the Jacksonville backfield more appealing or more interesting as late-round dart throws in best ball. But enough about backups. Let's talk about another running back who shifts value when point per first down is added, uh, DeAndre Swift. You might only think of Swift as a guy you would want in PPR, and it's true that he does gain value in those formats because he's going to catch a lot of passes, but all the receiving work he projects for also makes him a good target in point per first down leagues. Swift's projection for about 18 first downs receiving is 14th best among running backs, but six of the guys ahead of him are highly receiving-centric players. James White, Matt Breda, Kareem Hunt, Antonio Gibson, Tariq Cohen, and Chris Thompson. Those guys don't project for the same level of rushing production as Swift, and as a result, Swift gains four projected ranking spots in zero PPR leagues when point per first down is introduced to the scoring. Swift jumps from RB26 to RB22, because even though he isn't getting points for the receptions themselves, all those first downs he projects for as a receiver give him a leg up over the rushers near him in ADP who project for split backfield roles where they won't see as many overall opportunities to gain first downs, both rushing and receiving. That dual threat nature of Swift makes him better in point per first down leagues. So again, if one of the other backs in his committee like on Johnson, get hurt, Swift has a lot of room to move up uh, and, and take on a big volume in that Detroit running game. And honestly, like just based upon where they drafted him and the talent that he showed in college, he might be there already. He might be somebody that we're not valuing highly enough based upon his ability to contribute in both phases of the, of the game, running and receiving. 
Next up is Damian Williams, and I mentioned before how Clyde Edwards-Hilaire loses value in point per first down because he's sharing first down opportunities with other rushers, and Damian Williams is that other rusher for the Chiefs, so he also loses value in point per first down leagues, dropping two spots in the projected rankings for both PPR and non-PPR. This is an overall trend that you can apply to pretty much all timeshares at running back. So I'm not going to touch on too many more committee situations like this because the impact is intuitive, right? If running back touches are more spread out, that reduces the first down opportunities for all players involved in that backfield, so they'll likely lose some value in point per first down leagues. The flip side of that coin in point per first down is that you want to target players who will see the bulk of their team's touches. This is that Leonard Fournette idea. But keep in mind that we're going to be wrong with our projections in many cases, uh, so if a backfield projected as a timeshare in the offseason ends up becoming a workhorse situation due to injuries or other projection errors, then our analysis based upon the scoring settings aren't quite as valuable in those situations. So again, if, if you missed that discussion I had with Pat Corrine on the last episode about projection errors, go back and listen to that for some more insight. Uh, but let's move on to the next group of rushers, Kerryon Johnson, Sonny Michelle, and Latavius Murray. These three don't project for much receiving work, so they're generally worth less in PPR than they would be in non-PPR. With that said, in PPR leagues that also use point per first down, Johnson, Michelle, and Murray all gain a little bit of value because their rushing first down production helps make up for that lack of PPR production. Carryon Johnson jumps from running back 50 to running back 45. Michelle jumps from 34 to 31. And Murray jumps from 36 to 33. So again, point per first down helps those guys, even in PPR. The last group I want to talk about are Jordan Howard, Alexander Madison, Carlos Hyde, Adrian Peterson, and Malcolm Brown. These guys are very similar to that group of Carrion, Michelle, and Latavius Murray, because these are all players who project for a relatively large amount of short yardage work. And short yardage work near the goal line or otherwise is directly tied to first down opportunities. So it should come as no surprise that Howard, Madison, Hyde, etc., all figure to gain some amount of value in point per first down leagues. It's not a lot, but it's a little bit, and you should be mindful of that. Now let's get into the wide receiver position, and we'll start with these basic questions again. We're looking for targets and snaps. Pretty much the same sorts of avenues are going to lead to those. You know, High talent players are going to get more work. Scheme is going to dictate which players see more touches sometimes. And attrition in a certain offense can have can have that sort of effect as well. Like think about what happened with the Eagles last year, losing so many receivers that really pumped up the volume for the receivers that they still had that were healthy. You know, Zach Ertz, Dallas Goddard, and so on. Now we should also maybe take a pause here to ask how can we avoid overreacting to scoring settings biases, right? How can we know when it's correct to draft a lower volume player like Deshaun Jackson in a PPR format? Well, projections specifically help us do this, right? They they show us a median idea or, or some range of outcomes of what we can expect that player to score relative to the other players around them in ADP. So if you start to see Deshaun Jackson creep up to the top of your projections for wide receivers, even if he doesn't project as a great player in your PPR format, he might still be projected for more points than other guys who are going to be profiled as more heavily targeted players because those high value targets that Deshaun Jackson is getting, those big splash plays do still carry value in the right circumstances. And so we also need to understand the need for, or the benefits of those high upside splash plays, right? If we have a roster that's full of players like that, we're going to have a really fluky season. It's going to be a roller coaster ride where some weeks we hit, some weeks we don't, some weeks we land in the middle and Typically landing in the middle ain't great either. So what you usually want is you want a solid floor. You want a lot of guys who are going to see high volume. And then you want to mix in the splash play guys. So when you do hit that floor from the bulk of your roster, the splash play guys can put you over the top in a given matchup. So those sorts of principles with splash plays are, are a little bit more applicable to the wide receiver position than the running back position because running back touches tend to be a little bit more predictable. Now, game script can throw that on its ear a little bit, right? We talked about these running backs like Naheem Hines or whoever who might project to see more work if their teams are playing from behind. It's just hard to project that going in, whereas we kind of know what type of player Deshaun Jackson is or John Brown is or whoever, those splash play types. And typically when they're being targeted, they're being targeted down the field. They're being targeted in a way such that they can score a lot of points on a very small number of targets. 
Still, the point is that in PPR, because they're seeing fewer targets, they don't gain as much value from PPR as the guys who are seeing a higher volume of targets, obviously. So let's talk about these specific players who move up or move down in the projected rankings based on PPR, based on point per first down. And these extra scoring settings make touchdowns and yardage a little less valuable in a relative sense, right? Like if players are gaining points for their receptions or for their first downs, then they don't need to score quite as much through touchdowns and through yardage to be viable fantasy starters. But for wide receivers and tight ends, projecting for more first downs or receptions to a lesser extent will correlate with more yardage. And that makes sense, right? If a player is touching the ball more, they're going to get more yards typically. And in general, if a pass catcher projects better in PPR, that's typically driven by volume, which will also make them project better in point per first down. This isn't always going to be the case, but guys, again, that are touching the ball more and therefore getting more receptions are also likely to score more first downs and get more points that way if that's a scoring setting that your league rewards. So keep those notes in mind as we go through some of these wide receivers and tight ends who shift in value depending upon the value of receptions and first downs. And up at the top of the board, we got Michael Thomas, wide receiver one in ADP. And the projections have him pegged like that in half point PPR and full point PPR. But if you go to no PPR, Michael Thomas drops all the way to wide receiver four. Again, I think most people these days play with some form of PPR. But if you're in a non-PPR league and you're looking to draft the first wide receiver off the board, you might not want to smash the button on Michael Thomas like you would in another league that has point per reception. And for what it's worth, Thomas projects as a total stud in point per first down, where he's the wide receiver one, regardless of what receptions are worth. So now let's move to the first round antithesis of Michael Thomas, Tyreek Hill. He jumps up to wide receiver one in non-PPR, non-point per first down leagues, because he represents that archetype of receivers that we want in non-PPR formats. A lot of splash play potential with a relatively high target volume, right? He's getting more targets than the other splash play guys because he's so good. And if he's getting a higher target volume on deeper targets, that means more splash plays, which makes him super valuable when he does hit. And so if you don't have PPR, if you don't have point per first down, you don't really care that his overall volume is less than that of Michael Thomas or Devontae Adams or whoever else. Because when Hill does catch the ball, chances are it's going for a lot of yards. Chances are he's going to score more touchdowns than other splash play guys just because he's seeing more targets. So he's this weird middle ground between elite receiver and high volume receiver to where he's just perfect for leagues that don't use PPR or point per first down. Let's go to DeAndre Hopkins next. And he actually needs PPR or half point PPR to project as a top six wideout. Without PPR, he's the wide receiver nine or the wide receiver eight depending upon how much first downs are worth. There are a few things driving this, right? He switched teams. There's usually a little grace period when receivers have to learn a new system, a new coach, a new quarterback. That's not to say Hopkins can't buck that trend. We've seen other guys do it in the past, and Hopkins is very good. But that overall trend of receivers struggling in year one with a new team, coupled with the fact that the Cardinals' scheme is generally designed to spread the ball around and not just go all in on Hopkins like Deshaun Watson might have done in Houston, that makes Hopkins lose value in the projections when you're not getting value for receptions. Next up are Kenny Galladay, Amari Cooper, Odell Beckham Jr., and A.J. Brown. All of these guys rank two or three spots higher in non-PPR than they do in full PPR. Galladay, based on his reliance on touchdowns, Cooper, Beckham, and Brown, based upon their profile as more big play types, those splash play types. DJ Moore is next, and he is a volume stud. He projects much better with either point per reception or point per first down than he does without those. He's the wide receiver 21 in traditional scoring, but he's the wide receiver 13 in PPR. The other PPR guy that I'm obligated to talk about is Keenan Allen. In non-point per first down leagues, he ranks 13 spots higher in PPR than he does in non-PPR. That's crazy. And in point per first down leagues, he ranks 10 spots higher in PPR than in non-PPR. So if you're in a traditional league, Keenan Allen is probably undraftable because someone in your league is going to kind of forget that PPR isn't a thing. And they're just going to see that name brand value of Keenan Allen. They're going to draft him before he goes or before he should be going. Unless your overall league is very sharp, the general consensus on Keenan Allen is going to drive up his price higher than what it should be in a non-PPR league. Let's move on to some more secondary type receivers. Uh, we'll start with Calvin Ridley and DK Metcalf. Both these guys are good receivers, great receivers maybe. 
but they do project for more limited roles based on the other talented targets in their offense. Calvin Ridley is competing with Julio Jones. DK Metcalf is competing with Tyler Lockett, right? Based on these smaller volume projections for Ridley and Metcalf, they look better in non-PPR and non-point per first down. The grain of salt here is this all flights out the window if Julio Jones or Tyler Lockett gets hurt and misses time. So don't ignore that potential for attrition-based upside with Ridley and Metcalf, right? Honestly, the, the Ridley stuff is already kind of baked into his cost. He's being drafted as if Julio Jones might get hurt. And also just because he was good last year and good as a rookie. Metcalf is still pretty affordable, though, relative to Lockett. So th- there is a lot of potential value there if Lockett can't stay on the field for all 16 games. On the flip side of the Metcalf coin, we have Tyler Lockett, who projects as the higher volume guy in Seattle. So despite his big play potential, that splash play profile he might have, the projections actually like Lockett more with PPR than without PPR. And I thought that was interesting. That, that caught me by surprise. Let's go next to Devontae Parker, Terry McLaurin, and T.Y. Hilton. All of them rank better when receptions don't score points. Again, these are those big play profile types. And in the case of Parker and McLaurin, there have to be some concerns about their team's less impressive offenses not really being able to promote more target volume with sustained drives. And so that does hurt them when it comes to projecting a lot of receptions, projecting a lot of first downs, because their teams might not be good. Hilton doesn't have that same concern, but he does just generally project as that more deep play type of receiving asset. We've got a pair of Bengals next, A.J. Green and Tyler Boyd. Both project better with PPR than without, but I think we should probably question that result. Will there be enough targets to go around with T. Higgins added to the mix and a bigger overall workload assumed for Joe Mixon? John Ross is still there in Cincinnati. I think there's just a chance that either Green or Boyd fails to meet expectations. And if you ask me which one I would choose, I'd be more worried about Green, if only because the way the Bengals handled him and handled his contract situation through last year in this offseason makes me worry that he might hold out, that he might be a little disgruntled. And you don't really want that sort of drama. And I hate to bring narrative into an episode that is so explicitly focused on stats and projections, but this stuff should matter to some extent. And I just think Tyler Boyd is generally a safer play in terms of projecting that volume. Uh, But with that said, I think this anomaly where Green and Boyd are both projecting better in PPR than without PPR probably has more to do with Cincinnati projecting for fewer touchdowns than most other offenses based on their tough division, based on their rookie quarterback, right? Green and Boyd figure to score a higher percentage of their points from receptions because they're projected for fewer touchdowns than the other wideouts in this range of ADP. So I still think there's that risk of one or both of these guys failing to meet their projections and failing to deliver on this idea that they're better in PPR, but it's not just driven by the potential projection error. I think it's also driven by the fact that they're not projected for as many touchdowns as other receivers. Going to go rapid fire for the last couple groups here. The first is Christian Kirk, Jamison Crowder, Jerry Judy, and Sterling Shepard. These guys all just profile as PPR machines, point per first down machines are going to touch the ball a lot. You might not necessarily see them targeted super far down the field, especially in the case of Kirk, Crowder, and Shepard. And so with that in mind, uh, a lot of those dump off, stink and dunk sorts of targets are going to be short of the sticks where they're going to have run after catch ability to go get those first downs. And again, because the plays themselves are of shorter yardage gains, that gives them the opportunity to get more catches on a given drive, assuming that the offense can sustain a drive, right? So Kirk, Crowder, Judy, and Shepard definitely go up in value when you're adding points for receptions or for first downs. Last two guys I want to talk about are Darius Slayton and Mecole Hardman. These guys are the opposite, right? They have that non-PPR, non-point-per-first-down appeal because they typically will be targeted further down the field. They won't be targeted as often. They're the big play types. And that exhausts the list of big movers in our projected rankings as PPR value and point-per-first-down value shift. There are other risers and fallers further down ADP, but the projected scores in those ranges are lower. So the gains that that we might see, like, oh, this person rose five spots in the rankings. Those gains are less impactful, and more subject just to variance. So it's not really worth going into them in detail here on the pod. Uh, With that said, go to 444.com, check out the projections, do this yourself to figure out, you know, if you're in a super deep league, which guys you might want to be more likely to throw a dart on 
uh, if you're in PPR, if you're in point per first down, based upon those projections. Um, overall, I think the key takeaway for wide receiver is to think more about the general trends that drive PPR, that drive point per first down value, based on how these receivers score their points, right? I've talked about this ad nauseum to this point, so let's just move on to tight end. And tight end is a unique position. So before we get too deep into it, let's consider how tight ends are typically ranked or drafted and why, right? The top tight ends are target hogs, not only compared to other tight ends, but also compared to other pass catchers on their NFL teams. Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, Mark Andrews, and Zach Ertz are from this mold, and they rank in that order no matter what the value is for receptions or first downs, right? Kelsey, Kittle, Andrews, and Ertz are ostensibly their team's number one receivers. So they already have the volume. It's there. Although it is worth noting that Ertz specifically does rank closer in projected points to the top three when receptions and first downs gain value. So he is more of that volume profile receiver, whereas Kelsey, Kittle, and Andrews have more of that splash play ability. So the projections peg him for more fantasy value tied to his receptions, tied to his first downs, than to his yardage and touchdowns like Kelsey, Kittle, and Andrews. Now moving on past that top four, Darren Waller just barely misses that distinction of ranking as a a top guy. Waller ranks as the tight end five in all formats, except for the intersection of non-PPR and non-point per first down, where he's the tight end six. So he's close to that distinction that Ertz has of just being a volume hog, but the touchdowns and... The big plays aren't really there in the projections for Waller. So he does slide a little bit when he's not getting rewarded for that target volume. And overall, I'd argue that both Ertz and Waller deserve a bit more skepticism than the top three tight ends because both guys benefited from a severe lack of target competition in 2019 and their respective teams should run out stronger receiving units in 2020. The Eagles wideouts should generally be healthier and they added Jalen Rager in the draft while the Raiders used the draft to add three new receiving threats in Henry Ruggs, Brian Edwards, and Lynn Bowden. They also signed the aging Jason Witten at tight end. I don't know how much that matters, but it is worth noting. All that talent that Oakland added is a big reason why Waller's projection for a 3.8% touchdown rate is easily the worst among the draftable tight ends. It doesn't help that Waller's tight end teammate Foster Moreau projects for the highest touchdown rate among all tight ends in 4 for force projections. His mark is ridiculous. It's like, almost 22% touchdown rate. So this might be a case where the projections are skewing too far in one direction, but if they're right, and if Waller isn't going to see those touchdown looks, then we have to be a little bit more skeptical of him as a weekly fantasy asset because all he's really giving you is dink and dunk reception volume. He's Jack Doyle at that point, right? And just in general with Waller, his overall sample size of games played is very small So we can't simply expect a continuation of last season's production. That sort of thinking tends to burn us with these second-tier tight ends year after year with over-projection. Last year, O.J. Howard, Vance McDonald, and David David Njoku all stand out as examples to me. Waller can still be useful in PPR and point-per-first-down leagues based upon his big volume projection, though, especially in tight end premium leagues where the volume of those counting stats becomes worth even more, right? So... We know that Waller's value is tied to PPR and point per first down. So if he's getting rewarded even more for those stats, for receptions and first downs, then he's still going to be very good in tight end premium. After Waller, the next tier is full of tight ends who project for lots of targets compared to the guys lower in ADP. But these guys don't necessarily have that top target status with their respective quarterbacks. Really, this tier bleeds into the edge of the top tier, I think, with Ertz and Waller. And it's traditionally a risky group to pick from because the game-to-game volume for these tight ends is less consistent or predictable. So when we talk about Tyler Higbee, Evan Ingram, Hunter Henry, Rob Gronkowski, Austin Hooper, Hayden Hurst, and Jared Cook, they're proven players, but all have to fight a little bit harder for their targets than the top tight ends, which makes them more volatile. And that problem gets worse and worse as you go down ADP into the pool of less proven tight ends. Again, we're talking about this overall trend of why we rank and draft tight ends in the order that we do. So all in all, tight end rankings, tight end ADP, they're already driven so much by volume projections that the differences in scoring settings for PPR and point per first down tend to be more understated. But there are some clear winners and losers in our projections based upon the archetypes of how these tight ends are scoring their points. 
Let's talk first about high target volume and reception volume projections. These guys are going to be better in PPR and point per first down. Up near the top, we have Tyler Higby and Evan Ingram that fit this bill. These are the last of the tight ends in ADP with projections for over 70 receptions. And neither Higby nor Ingram project for significantly better touchdown totals than the lower ranks of tight end. In fact, everyone below Higby in tight end ADP, down to Mike Gusecki at tight end 13, projects for more touchdowns than Higby does. So because Higby isn't scoring as many of his points from touchdowns in fantasy, he does project to gain value in point per first down and point per reception leagues. Some lower ranked tight ends who are going to have that higher target volume are Noah Fant, TJ Hawkinson, Jonu Smith, and Irv Smith Jr. All of these guys project for more targets and catches than the tight ends around them in ADP because their teams are thinner at wide receiver or because their offensive schemes project for more overall tight end usage. That doesn't mean these players aren't risky though, right? Because they don't have that locked in number one role that the guys who are ranked higher than them do for their respective teams. Like for example, TJ Hawkinson might be the third, fourth, or fifth target for his team in any given week because he's competing with Kenny Galladay, with Marvin Jones, with the running backs there, with Danny Amendola. They signed Geronimo Allison, who knows how much he'll play. Even though Hawkinson is in this position to take a leap forward, there is the risk of him being more of an up-and-down type player, just like most tight ends tend to be. And you can apply that same sort of thinking to Jonu Smith, to Irv Smith Jr., to Noah Fan. I would actually say that Jonu Smith is the one guy from this group who intrigues me the most because the Titans don't have all that much in the receiving game around him to compete for in terms of targets. Like We know A.J. Brown's going to get a ton of targets, but Corey Davis has been a, a dud at this point in his career. That's not to say Davis can't turn it around. He's still young enough. But Jonu Smith might get that volume by default, and so he's a safer mid to late round tight end option to me than someone like Irv Smith Jr. or, or Noah Fan or even TJ Hawkinson in some cases. Now let's move on to a different archetype of tight end for these lower ranks, the red zone weapons. These guys are going to be better in non-PPR and non-point per first down. We'll start with Jared Cook, Austin Hooper, and Mike Gusecki. Athleticism and offensive scheme for these tight ends make them bigger scoring threats than other players at the position. Within ADP's top 30 tight ends, Jared Cook's projected touchdown rate is second to only Mark Andrews, and Hooper's projected touchdown rate ranks fourth. Who in the top 30 ranks third between Cook and Hooper? You have to go all the way down to tight end 30 with Tyler Eifert. And along with Eifert in those lower ranks, other guys who project as red zone weapons are Chris Herndon, Greg Olson, Darren Fells, and David Njoku. Again, these guys are going to be less valuable in PPR and point per first down. All of them project similarly for high touchdown production relative to their number of opportunities. So they're going to be more valuable in traditional scoring that doesn't reward for receptions or first downs. I should say that this sort of trend applies more to PPR than it does to point per first down because that same sort of ability that makes a player more of a red zone threat also makes them more of a threat to go get first downs on say like a third and six or something like that, right? Like big body, jump ball ability, contested catch ability. These guys can still rack up a fair number of first downs relative to their number of targets, whereas they might not see as many receptions uh, relative to how many yards they're putting together, how many touchdowns they're putting up. Another thing to point out is that a touchdown technically counts as a first down. So when a player scores a touchdown, they're also going to get credited with a first down uh, in most league software for uh, fantasy football. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, back to this group, though. Chris Herndon projects as the most efficient of this group at 13.7 yards per catch with a touchdown rate of 10.4%. And that makes him one of the best candidates, I think, from this group to make a leap, regardless of scoring format. Herndon's upside is also helped by all the uncertainty around him in the Jets wide receiver group. We don't really know where the targets are going to go there because they have so many new pieces and because so many of their receivers are just honestly not that good on paper that the ability that Herndon is flash might make him a high-volume guy for Sam Darnold. I think Darren Fells, again, is intriguing for similar reasons. Deshaun Watson just lost his top touchdown threat in DeAndre Hopkins, and that leaves Fells as the incumbent pass catcher with the most red zone rapport with Houston's quarterback. The projections reflect that with a 17% touchdown rate for Fells, which is second best to the aforementioned Foster Moreau among all of our projected tight ends. So, 
again, if, you, if you're trying to skew towards touchdown and towards big splash weeks, I, I think this is very applicable in best ball. Darren Fells is, is very interesting. The question we have to ask with all these touchdown-dependent guys is whether or not they can see enough overall volume for those splash weeks to offset the no-show weeks. If they're not already projected for enough volume, how might they be able to work their way into more volume than expected? You know, which tight ends will be schemed more money touches around the end zone? I think that Phil's is a, is a good candidate for that. Or how many of these tight ends teammates would need to underperform or get injured for the tight end to take that jump in volume? And again, that, that, that's the Chris Herndon point that I made earlier. So that, that path to volume seems more clear to me for Herndon and Fells and maybe even Tyler Eifert than it does for Greg Olson and David Njoku because I see Olson and Njoku just having more guys to compete with for touches in general, let alone those money touches. And that's where I'm going to wrap it up with this look at point per reception and point per first down scoring settings. I hope you all enjoyed the solo format of this podcast. I don't do this very often, but but I do like to do it. It helps me work through some stuff as I put together more detailed notes for the episodes. Um, whether you liked it or not, I'd like to hear it. Uh, so please leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you want to re- rate and review the show. If you are going to provide constructive criticism, I would encourage you or plead with you to give that five-star rating, even if you are going to give a, a critical review, because that helps other people find the show. And I can still take away from your actual review what you write about how to make the show better, whether or not to keep doing these solo shows. Um, anyway, that, that's me going off on a tangent about rating and reviewing the podcast. Ultimately, do what you think is right. If, if you think the show is worth three stars, that's fine. Give it a three-star rating. Uh, I would like to think we do better than that. But your voice is the, the one that matters in this. So uh, let me know what you think. Let me know how we can make the show better. Be sure to head over to 444.com. Check out all these projections I've talked about. Check out all of our other great tools, all the great articles that our team is working on. Get that early bird discount while you can. Get that $35 voucher for the FFPC. You know you want to be drafting anyway this time of year. It's, it's really overall just a win-win. You get access to all the great stuff at 444. You get that free draft at the FFPC to go use what you learned. So encourage you to take advantage of that if you haven't become a 444 subscriber yet. Get on it. I will be back again next week with a guest. Not sure what the topic is going to be, but we'll cook up something good for you. As always, I appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next time on the Most Accurate Podcast. Adios. Adios.